This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Until I get those surgery when I was 12 years old and that fixed the problem, the entire family knows uh, that I really cannot feel upset or extreme joy or anything that makes uh, my heart beat too much. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hi there. We hope you're doing okay wherever you might be right now. Yes, indeed. And we're heading into our eighth week of physical distancing and mostly staying at home right now. And I know I'm certainly having my good days and my inverted commas, not quite as good days. Mm, You can certainly say that again. (laughs) Oops. But today is a very good day as we have a fascinating episode for you. It's with Taiwan's extraordinary digital minister, Audrey Tang. Audrey became the youngest government minister ever in Taiwan when she was appointed a few years ago at the age of 35. She's also the world's first ever transgender government minister. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. Somewhat of a child prodigy who also had a serious heart condition, Audrey's childhood was anything but conventional. She dropped out of school at the age of 14 to manage her own education and at the age of 16 started her first successful software business. Fast forward, and after some years working in Silicon Valley and further success, Audrey found herself moving from being a government activist in her own home country to a government minister. Yeah, it's amazing. In this episode, you'll hear how Audrey's quick involvement in creating a valuable app has played a key role in Taiwan's extraordinarily successful management of COVID-19, with the country never having to stop working. How her heart condition as a child means that to this day, Audrey doesn't experience anger or upset or even extreme joy. And how in Taiwan, thanks to calling software coders and engineers program designers, there are significantly more women than men working in the field. Plus, Audrey's unique ways of seeing arguments from both sides. Without further ado, sit back and enjoy this discussion with the remarkable Audrey Tang. Audrey Tang, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Hello. It's really great to have you on the show all the way from Taiwan. Thank you for giving up your time. We really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the first questions we like to ask, just to help our audience really 
ground who you are and get to know just a little bit about you is could you describe what you do today in your day job in just a couple of sentences? Okay. My day job is Taiwan's digital minister in charge of social innovation and open government. Today, I have maybe seven meetings around mask distribution, around using collaborative co-creation to combat the coronavirus. Wow, yeah. And we, we're seriously living in strange times, aren't we? And I, I know that Taiwan has been one of the most forward-thinking countries. You know, you were one of the first, I think, to respond to COVID-19. Mm, we started last year, yeah. whereas uh, many countries started this year. I think that did make a crucial difference. Yeah, well, it must have done. I think you've got only something like 388 cases today and six deaths, which is incredible when you consider how close you are to China. Mm-hmm. What do you think has really led to you being able to reduce the the number of cases apart from, you know, starting in December versus studying in 2020 like the rest of the world did? Well, I think uh, starting from December, we strongly suspected that this is a human-to-human transmission. So we did exactly as if it's the same as SARS back in 2003. Now, back in SARS, it took away 37 lives in Taiwan, and we decided that it was 37 people too many. So right after SARS, there's a series of constitutional rulings, there's a series of technological measures and so on that prepared us uh, for the next iteration of SARS, if you will. And so when this time came around the outbreak from Wuhan uh, last year, we started preparing to mobilize. And not only the government, but the civil society, everybody in the media and so on, treated as if the SARS came back again. And so we very quickly started mobilizing to exactly the same amount of strength with the Central Epidemic Control Center and the National Health Insurance System kicking into the full gear and so on. And so in a sense, we were inoculated by SARS. Yeah, wow. It sounds like, you know, the the SARS experience really got you to the point where you're incredibly prepared. What's it actually like day to day now in in Taipei, for example? Well, it's normal. People commute to work. The schools are open. People run their businesses. So aside from the air travel and tourism uh, industries, which are hard hit, every other aspect of the country works quite normally. At the moment, we're distributing a medical mask, nine per two weeks for adults or 10 per two weeks for children. And so like 95% of people on the street wear masks, and those who don't keep a a meter and a half distance from each other. Wow. It does sound like, you know, your forward thinkingness has got you to a point where not only have you managed the the pandemic, but you've also got an economy that's operating, which is fantastic. Probably the only country in the world, practically. And I guess it's because Taiwan's been confident that you've been able to isolate people who may be contagious, even if they're asymptomatic. Is that right from the point of view of allowing people just to to get on with Mm -hmm. life? That's correct. Contact tracing uh, in Taiwan has been implemented. I think uh, we and Korea are the two countries that implemented digital contact tracing really well. So, for example, for people who are under home quarantine, there is a digital fence. So if they return to Taiwan, if they're a citizen returning to Taiwan and they show no symptoms, 
they're asked to self-quarantine in their home for 14 days, and they were told that their mobile phone will basically keep track of their whereabouts, and it's constitutional, but it's only for 14 days. And after the 14 days, their phone signals is no longer tracked. So that's one of the ways that we've been uh, successfully implementing contact tracing. It's truly remarkable that Taiwan has been able to, for want of a better word, sort of insulate itself so well and be able to be carrying on as normal. It's almost like this bubble of normality in a world of disruption right now. Mm-hmm. And you touched on the sort of the digital tracking that's been one way of keeping the rest of the population safe for those Taiwanese returning home with mm-hmm. via their mobile phone. But I gather you've also recently, if I've read correctly, been getting back to your own coding roots as part of some of the work, you know, that you as digital minister have been doing during coronavirus. And perhaps you could tell us, you know, what you as digital minister have been involved with. Well, certainly. There's a couple applications that are very popular in Taiwan. For example, there's a real-time map that shows your nearby pharmacies. And if you need uh, like nine masks uh, right now, it shows you which uh, pharmacies do have masks in store. And you go there, you swipe your NHI card, you get nine masks, and then uh, you can see actually after a couple of minutes that uh, the stock level of that pharmacy depletes uh, by nine. And so it is not only a very useful locator to which pharmacies to go to, but also a great public ledger of sorts that makes sure that people remain calm and know that there's no hidden masks anywhere. And so that's my contribution is mostly to work with the National Health Insurance Agency so that they publish the stock level as open data every three minutes instead of at the end of the day, as is usual of statistics by other countries. Because if you only publish by the end of the day, it's the only the internal mechanisms in the government that can keep the pharmacies accountable. But if you publish every couple of minutes, then everybody can hold uh, each other accountable. So it becomes truly participatory. The other application uh, is called eMask, is that if you still have a few masks uh, in your home and you don't really need to rush to a pharmacy to pick it up, then you can at a comfort of your home, uh, use your mobile phone to pre-order to your nearby convenience store and then collect it a week after. I'd love to transfer now and step back and, you know, explore Audrey Tang more, not just uh, your role as digital minister, if that's okay with you. Of course. And thank you. And if, you know, we believe what we read, then your childhood was a little bit different to most. What are the things that stand out for you from your childhood? Well, um, I was born with a kind of heart defect <laughs> that prevents most of the not only mobility, but also the ability to feel truly upset. My grandparents and my parents told me that if I feel um, especially upset, then because my heart cannot pump so much oxygen into the brain, my face will turn purple and then I will faint. And so until I get the surgery when I was 12 years old and that fixed the problem, the entire family knows uh, that I really cannot feel upset or extreme joy or anything that makes uh, my heart beat too much. And so I guess I remain calm more than most other children uh, because of survival. Gracious, I can imagine. But even as a young child, presumably your parents had to be very sort of clever in in managing you to manage your emotions. 
Yeah, that's right. My parents really got me a lot of entertainment of sorts of, of how to access uh, to your emotions internally in an entertaining way. So they explained, for example, the ideas of the Tao Te Ching, of the Taoism, and how people can be at ease with one's emotions as a friend uh, that's living in your, your mind. And they also taught me how to take care of my own internal kind of feelings, giving them names and verbalize them. And so once you verbalize them and take a deep, deep breath and so on, then you distance yourself a little bit from your on-the-spot emotion and so on. And so there's quite a few kind of self-help skills that I learned very early on. And I imagine it sounds like they've probably held you in good stead. How would you say you're different today as a result of it? Well, I think that enabled me in a difficult situation where people are very opinionated to take all the sides. If I become enraged with uh, one particular side, then I cannot really take the opposite side. But because I cannot feel rage, so even when people are busily fighting each other, I can remain calm and stay in a non-violent position and then build shared values out of those different, very strongly held positions as a facilitator. Yeah, you're truly unique perspective and skill that you have there. That's fantastic. And I gather, you know, as a, as a young boy, as you were then at about eight, if I'm not mistaken, you, you wrote a computer game for your younger brother to help him learn fractions. Yeah, I was eight years old at the time. Yeah. Amazing. And you were clearly so bright, but then school wasn't a great experience for you, was it? Can you tell us a bit about your experience? Well, depends on which school, right? I went through three kindergartens and six primary schools and one year of junior high before dropping out. So that's 10 schools in 10 years. It's a blur. There's one kind of unifying kind of theme uh, behind those different school experience in that whatever I wish to learn is just being written, just being researched. It's not in the textbooks. And so at some point, I just talked to my junior high principal uh, saying that there's this great new website called Archive. It's a preprint server where people publish journal papers before they get official peer review or public peer review of sorts. And I just wrote them an email that didn't know I was just 14 years old and we can start co-creating research in real time. And everything I read there was like 10 years in the future compared to our textbooks. So I told my principal that, you know, I, I can read the textbooks or I can buy the textbooks for the 10, for the 10 years in the future. And after considering for a couple of minutes, my principal said, okay, you don't have to go to school anymore. And so that's why I remain very optimistic about the innovation capability of career public servants. Incredible. Wow. So it was actually your teacher that said that you didn't, that mm -hmm. you could drop out of school. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and they will cover for me because at that time, Taiwan did not have a experimental school law. Uh, we passed that a, a couple of years after that. And so, uh, I will have to pay fine, my family anyway, if I skip school. And, but they basically faked the record for me so I can, uh, first study, uh, in the nearby universities and then start a startup, uh, of my own. Wow. Fantastic. Incredible. And at 16, you started your own IT company and you were, you were pretty successful at that. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what was that like, you know, starting your own company as a 16-year-old? 
Well, it's it's a little bit challenging, right? Because I'm classified as a child worker, <laughs> meaning that my access to the boardroom and so on is limited. So my mom have to, have to be the shareholder, not me, because I'm not at a legal age. So despite all those age discriminations,、uh, from my viewpoint, <laughs> it was quite an interesting experience. I get to learn that in the Business world, it is not enough to、uh, build a product or a service as what、uh, that fits people's needs. We built, for example, the first people-to-people -people auction sites like eBay、uh, in Taiwan. It's called a Coolbit. We built search engines. We built a lot of useful products. But what's even more important is to co-create with your participants. So that's why I learned very early on not to call people users because if you call them users, you distance from Then you don't get to learn from them. And then I think you moved to Silicon Valley when you were 19 years old.、Mm -hmm. You know, what were your impressions of the Valley back then? Because I'm imagining it was either just before or just after the dot-com crash, the first round of dot-com crash. Because I was at、mm -hmm. eBay and went certainly went to San Jose around that same time. But what were your impressions of it all as a 19-year-old fresh from Taiwan?、Mm -hmm. It's a strange place. In, in Taiwan, we call programmers quote program designers unquote, and so there's more women than men in Taiwan writing computer programs because designers are girls, right? Engineers are boys because we we call programming program design. So we have the reverse challenge of trying to attract more boys into coding. Even today. Yeah, even today. Even today. Fascinating. That is really fascinating. That the language. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah, exactly. In Silicon Valley at that time, it's a very male-oriented culture. Even in open source, or, or especially in in open source communities, there's online forums where at that time there's、uh, women who are adopting a a male nickname, not because they're transgender or gender fluid, but because it avoids harassments. It, it seems very imbalanced to me. And so later on, I would participate, for example, in the Uh, geek feminism wiki, the code of conduct movement, and things like that. Try to address some of those imbalances that I never experienced in Taiwan. Yeah, truly incredible. And so, going back to the language of program designer rather than software engineer, say, and things like that, is it as simple as just changing the language, or is there a heritage that comes with that in Taiwan?、Uh, because you would think, if it was as simple as us changing the nomenc nomenclature, which I'm not going to say very well, and、uh, countries like Australia, United States, UK, wherever, we'd have done that. But what do you think it is that really makes the difference? Yeah, I really think that the language made a lot of difference because designer is about talking to people, and engineers were、well, about talking to engines. And nowadays, with、uh, Siri and Alexa, the engines actually talk back. But in any case, talking to people,、um, like emotional capability and so on,、uh, is usually taught even in kindergarten、um, as something that girls、um, having a superior skill. And so, if you say that program design is fundamentally about exploring design and talking to people, that is to say, to stakeholders on a user journey and things like that, and try not to call them user journeys, and then women will naturally. Be attracted to serve as role models and coaches along the side. But if you portray this as something that、uh, interacts only with engines, then it makes those advantages of people skills less useful. 
And so going back to your career journey, you know, you showed great sort of initiative and entrepreneurialism, taking yourself off to Silicon Valley. And I believe you sold at least one company and then also went on to be invited to advise Apple. You know, what do you think were the keys to your success? I think Linus Torvalds of Linux and Git said it best. Basically, he is just lazy and just rely on the work of others. That's that's the success uh, yeah. metric. No, I can't believe that, Audrey. No, seriously, it, it's always、uh, my experience that if I patent my work, if I hold close、uh, my quote intellectual property unquote, I did that actually in the first round in San Jose. Then I found out that people who want to contribute are all people who are in it for profit, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it also limits the stakeholders that I could engage. And in the later ventures, such as the Raku language used to be called Pro Six, and the Gov Zero movement, spelled G Zero V,、uh, in Taiwan, which I participated, we made sure that in the very beginning we say we relinquish our copyright using the Creative Commons framework, and then suddenly everybody can and can co-create, and they can even say it's their work because I relinquish even the attribution right to my work, so they can say it's. Still work, and so more people joined, like tens of thousands daily on the Gov Zero chat rooms. And so, yeah, I think the success truly belongs to everyone participating and just making kind of the、uh, interaction space and help holding it in place after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. That open source movement, I think, has just really been such a game changer, hasn't it? Changing topics completely. You know, I know at about I think it was around the age of twenty-five. So it must have been when you were in the middle of these startups. You took the decision、mm-hmm, yeah, to transition to, to,、yes. to be a female.、Mm-hmm. What was the trigger to make the transition? Well, there's no trigger per se. I mean, I am naturally born with a、uh, testosterone level. That's around a seventy years old man, meaning that it's、uh, kind of between、uh, normal female puberty levels、uh, and male puberty levels. So I <clears throat> never really developed so much on the first puberty, anyway. And so、uh, it really intrigued me、uh, how it's like to develop the brain、uh, through the female puberty, the relationship with one's body, the higher resolution of feeling emotions,、uh, with a sense of purpose. With A sense of empathy, not only with people but with the environment and so on. So I read all about it, but it's、um, not. There's no first-hand experience,、um, and so I really wanted to go through the second puberty to also get this、uh, first-hand experience, which went on for about three years,、uh, longer than which, of course, the the families、uh, tend to suffer <laughs> because of the、yeah. kind of heightened emotional sensitivity. But in any case,、uh, I'm I'm really glad that I went through the the second puberty, and then I have a kind of. Wider mental range、uh, when talking to people and their first-hand experiences. So there's no no single trigger. It it just seemed like something that I would really like to to explore and inquire. And what was the experience like? Well, it's quite interesting because along the same time, I was traveling around the world to more than twenty cities. 
holding hackathons, building the Pro Six at the time language, and so I also get to experience the different cultures around LGBTIQ. A plus around the different cultures. Like in in Taiwan,、uh, we're very tolerant. People just get by my my name、uh, with no problem. In Japan,、um, they call me Odoritan, which is a very cute kind of comical <laughs> version、uh, uh, of my new name, and so on. And I was actually in Australia as well. People are very accepting and inclusive, but it's、uh, less so in the nearby、uh, East Asia jurisdictions. There's people who are afraid, or people who are.、Uh, Frankly,、uh, just not so much understanding about the experience and so on. So, to me, it is also a chance to learn about the cultures、uh, around the globe. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can imagine it. If you put your curious lens on, it would have been very interesting, but it also must have been sometimes a little distressing.、Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know. I, I suspect you're, you're going to tell me that you don't feel like you're courageous, but for me, you've made some really. Big decisions in your life that feel like they would come from a place of courage, you know, things like leaving school at fourteen, transitioning, and and then, you know, in your after this, you then went on to protest and be an activist.、Mm-hmm. How do you think you've sort of been so clear of who you are and what you stand for, which I'm thinking must be behind the courage. At such a young age, yeah, and again, I think I would、uh, go back to this inability to to feel upset because、uh, whenever there is a new situation happening,、um, it's mostly the the kind of internal fear, uncertainty, doubt that makes people. Into a kind of learn helplessness, right? So I think just having the immunity. From the first experience, make sure that the fear doesn't lead to anger, right? So I may have some fear, but it doesn't lead to anger because I cannot experience anger, and so that doesn't lead to hate, and that doesn't lead to suffering. To paraphrase Yoda, and you talked about fear, and I'd love to hear. You know, are there times where you've felt fear or self doubt about your? For example, ability to take on a, a new opportunity, or to try or do something new, and if there have been those times, what have you done, or what tips have you used on yourself to kind of push through those moments of fear? Yeah, to me,、uh, fear always leads to curiosity, <laughs> and curiosity leads to learning. And learning, I guess, leads to joy. And so, to me, it's a, a very kind of hardwired pathway in my mind that whenever I fear something, I am motivated to learn about it. I want to learn both about my fear because that's telling me that there's some physical harm, there's some mental harm that is on the way, and it, it's very useful, right? It's like a alarm bell. If there's no fear, it's like people who don't feel pain, they can very easily get them. Self burned, right? So I think it's a very useful alarm bell.、Uh, it's just that because I cannot feel anger or hate that led from anger, I have more mental capacity to feel curiosity. Interesting, and and that sort of explains why I guess you were able to, at the age of thirty three, I think you decided to retire, certainly from the commercial world or the startup、mm-hmm. world,、okay. and focus on things that you enjoy. And I think. Relatively soon after that, you you became an activist. Is that is that、mm-hmm. correct? 
Well, I've always been an activist. The the fight for autonomy in in homeschooling and alternative education is one of the first movement that I joined, and I was just like. I don't know, 12 at the time, 13. And so I think it's just that uh, after stopping working in a for-profit but with purpose uh, manner and working on a for-purpose and sometimes with profit uh, manner, uh, it enabled me to connect more uh, with the activism groups and charities before I fully occupied the parliament and helped the students live streaming their, their occupied. So you went from being an activist to being a minister in the Taiwanese government. Mm -hmm. The youngest ever. And the youngest ever. Mm -hmm. What are your priorities as Taiwan's digital minister? So the job description, which I posted on Twitter, the day I become digital minister was actually a prayer uh, that I wrote in New Zealand the months before I become the digital minister. I was very inspired by the Maori chants that the Open Source Open Society conference opened with. And so I, I just wrote a, a poem, a, a prayer to celebrate that. And that became my job description. <laughs> and, and the prayer goes like this. When we see the Internet of Things, let's make it a Internet of beings. When we see virtual reality, let's make it a shared reality. When we see machine learning, let's make it collaborative learning. When we see user experience, let's make it about human experience. And whenever we hear that a singularity is near, let us always remember the plurality is here. So that's my job description. Wow, I love that. There can't be many people that have, one, written their own job description, but two, made a poem of it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And, you, you know, we, we've talked a bit about the skills that you've brought to being the digital minister for Taiwan, because I think you don't actually have a ministry or across multiple ministries. Is that correct? Well, my office delegates from each ministry. So we have around 12 delegates from 12 ministries. They're section chief level or all the way to director general level and work in a very horizontal manner. The other half of my office is experts from the RCA, from IDO, from CIID, you know, professional designers and facilitators and technologists. And you, you've talked about, you know, sort of what lies ahead in terms of virtual reality and AI mm -hmm. and even singularity or plurality. You know, what role, if any, does your ministry or do you have in terms of sort of thinking about helping the, the broader Taiwanese population stay relevant and get the skills they need? Yeah, one of the signature platform promises of Dr. Tsai Ing-wen's first term, which currently has, uh, let's see, one month left, but she's get re-elected, so we get four more years. One of the signature promises is broadband as human right. So even on top of Taiwan, that's almost 4,000 meters high, in the uh, Savia uh, or the Jade Mountain, uh, you still have 10 megabits per second in a 4G connection at around 15 euros per month and unlimited bandwidth. And if anywhere in Taiwan you don't have that, it's personally my fault. I, I will uh, see that it's fixed. And so it makes sure that people is not just being talked to like in radios and television era, but rather they can become co-producers. And we start teaching not media literacy as if they were users 
teachers, but rather media competence as if they're producers as early as the first grade as a part of our basic education, making sure that people, no matter whether they're eight years old or eighty years old, can be、uh, fruitful participants into civic journalism and other endeavors、uh, that makes full use of their unlimited bandwidth at no marginal cost. What about for the average? Person listening now, or like myself, what's your advice on how we could best future-proof ourselves?、Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the most important thing is to take a deep breath and do not let anger control you. That is the most important thing. When you're seeing a picture or a short clip that is designed. To make you feel a sense of outrage and click share without fact checking anything, you need to understand that this is a manufactured virus of the mind. And if only by taking a deep breath you can take a little bit step back, then you reduce the R zero value, the virality of that、uh, message, and then it's like wearing a protective mask. And so I think、uh, a habit of looking from a very social media, not from a passive consumer perspective, but rather from a producer perspective, is very important. Yeah, well, it, it, it sounds as if what you're saying is that as people go into the future, they're going to get more skills for critical thinking and use technology better to. Really manage the information that they're receiving.、Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly right. I know we are running out of time. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I think we could talk for hours and hours. But one question we can't let you leave without asking, because we ask all of our guests this: is what advice would you give your thirty-year-old self if you could go back in time? Well, I'm just thirty-eight, so it's not. It's just eight years before, I guess. So, if I go back eight years before, I would say that、um, no, I, I wouldn't change a thing. Actually, at that time, I was、uh, already planning for working on entirely for purpose and not for profit. I guess I'll encourage myself to do so even sooner than I actually did. I wouldn't take three years uh, to uh, transition into entirely for purpose. Maybe I I've got enough savings anyway. I should do that when I was thirty、uh, years old. <laughs> What a nice place to be! Yeah, absolutely.、Um, well, we wish you every success in pursuing that purpose because it sounds like some amazingly constructive things are、mm -hmm. happening. You know, if listeners wanted to find out more about you and your work, Audrey, where should they go? Yeah, I'm Audrey T.、Uh, T for Tang. I'm Audrey T on Twitter. Fantastic. Okay. Well, we will share that link with listeners, and it leaves it for me now to have the honor of saying thank you so much for、mm -hmm. this fascinating conversation, Audrey, and for giving us this time at a pretty busy time.、Mm -hmm. We genuinely appreciate it so much. So, thank you indeed. Thank you for the awesome interview, and have a good local time. Yes. Thank, thank you. you very much. Take care. Bye bye. Audrey's such an interesting and impressive character, isn't she? Yes, she certainly is. You know, if I had to summarise Audrey, there's something about the word duality that really seems apt to me. You know, her gender story, male now female, the fact she's a government minister, but also a self-declared activist, and then there's also her ability to connect people from really different worlds and see very opposing points of view and work with them all constructively. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I loved her work on the、uh, coronavirus app. 
I mean, how remarkable that the Taiwanese never had to work from home. And yet they've had around 400 people with the virus and just six deaths. I know, those numbers are so small because they've got a population similar to Australia's actually, about 23 million. So the stats are remarkable. Incredible. Um, it's such a great demonstration of a key part of her ability to stay connected to the community, harness their ideas and other resources, and use her own phenomenal digital talents to help bring useful things for society to life. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I also find it remarkable that she insists on total transparency for her work these days you know for example we had to agree to having the transcript for our entire conversation with her published by her ministry as she does with every single meeting she has yeah it's it's really refreshing actually i can think of numerous other government ministers elsewhere in the world that i'd like to be that transparent as well Mm, me too well that's this episode done and dusted stay tuned for another of our new mini episodes next week and then a fantastic interview with new york times best-selling author and founder and ceo of acumen jacqueline novogratz she's so awesome ciao for now hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high end brands. And the best part, they're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.